Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. And welcome to episode 00052 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'll be your host through to eight this evening, uh, broadcasting again from uh, Radio City Dockland. So um, I'd like to acknowledge the land from which I'm broadcasting on. That's the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Now, like I said, it's actually um, episode 52 of the mission. That means we've been on air for a year. Before this damn virus came along, we did um, have some small, but I think uh, appropriate celebrations um, planned to, to celebrate the uh, the one year mark on air. Um, we're going to have a you know a, a small street party. We're going to work with a couple of local government areas actually to have Nicholson Street blocked off uh, from Alexandra Parade through to uh, Blythe Street. And there was also um, going to be an open top tram. Um, I'm not sure how that was going to work, but it was going to have every guest that's been on the program over the past 12 months. Uh, some guests were going to be flown in from interstate and overseas to partake in the parade at great expense. Uh, there was going to be lasers, flames, dances, a flyover from the RAF. Quokkas were being flown in from Rottnest Island for people to have their selfies taken with. Yo-Yo Ma was going to play the show's intro on his effing cello. Kevin Sheedy and Kevin McLeod were going to be in conversation as a warm-up, an odd pairing, but, uh, you know, I think it would have worked in the end. There was going to be free booze and sarsaparellas for everyone, and I was going to eventually arrive by helicopter and land on the roof at Triple uh, R World Headquarters. Um, but, you know, it was really going to be something. But, um, no, the uh, zoonotic plague has seen an end to all that. So maybe next year. Instead, I am stuck here uh, with wine stains on the carpet, empty but smelly ashtrays, gravy all over my white singlet, slippers and uh, a dressing gown that doesn't quite fit properly. But that's the way it is. We're all on this together, aren't we, people? Isn't that just wonderful? Anyway, the show must go on. And uh, what we have for you this evening is um, quite a show, a very good show, I would, I would suggest, and I hope you stick around and listen to it. In a minute, I'll be joined by the new co-chair of Reconciliation Victoria and the CEO of said organisation, uh, Diana David and Shane Charles. We'll have a yarn about the role of the organisations and um, various other things too. And in the second half of the show, I'll have a conversation with uh, the one and only Amy McGuire, who wrote a great article in the Saturday paper about the preparedness of the Aboriginal health sector in the fight against COVID-19. So it should be um, another good show. As per, the best way to get in contact with me is via Twitter. My handle is at MrDTJames. This is the mission on Triple R 102.7. Independently yours, Triple R 102.7. So, look, when, when this is all over, I'm broadcasting from home, so um, forgive me. When this is all over, there will be issues that will continue to be addressed um, because they have to. And one such issue that we need to continue to walk the path towards is reconciliation. I'm um, 
journey will be ensuring true history is told, particularly in places like here in Victoria, where the impacts of invasion and colonialisation um, really took hold from a very early stage, and that was, of course, accelerated by the various gold rushes we had down here. And so part of that truth-telling is actually part of the vision for Reconciliation Victoria, which wants a Victorian identity that reflects our true history, promotes and celebrates Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture, equity and self-determination. So on the line with me now, I have um, the newly appointed co-chair of Reconciliation Victoria, Shane Charles, and he's a proud Wurundjeri, Bunurong and Yorta Yorta man. And also on the line is the CEO of Reconciliation um, Victoria, Diana David. Uh, Diana's no stranger to Triple R. She's a proud Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander woman from um, Central Cape in the York Peninsula. And um, Shane and Diana, welcome to the mission. Oh, thanks, Daniel. Look, I ask this question um, of everyone that comes on the show at the moment. I'll start with you, Shane. Um, how are you and your friends and family holding up during this crisis? Oh, look, I guess, um, you know, we've all sort of battened down and, and doing the right thing, um, but ensuring that, you know, we're constantly in communication and, and talking with the family and supporting the family as much as we can. So uh, a little bit stir-crazy, I guess, like everybody, but uh, looking forward for the, you know, getting my wings back and that freedom. Yeah, you're not wrong. And what about what about you, Diana? How, how are your friends and family um, coping with the current situation? Well, it's... All the, the work-life balance, I'm doing my best, but uh, this strange new world we find ourselves in with COVID-19, I guess it's, um, yeah, it's, it is what it is. And I guess um, working from home, and it's funny because I'm CEO slash mum slash uh, school teacher for my 10-year-old. So, yeah, you know, right. we're trying to juggle everything at once. But I guess it's uh, for the organisation, um, for Reconciliation Victoria, I guess it's all about, um, you know, how and what we do and how we do it um, and how we support Aboriginal community. Um, the Aboriginal community is vulnerable at this stage and how do we as an organisation keep stories alive, adapting with these changes and um, most importantly, using culture as a strength during these difficult times. Not consume that dialogue on our social so much that we know that we cannot deny that COVID-19 is at our doorstep, but I guess the relevance for our organisation and um, for everyone, I guess it's um, how we can support or echo Aboriginal people's work during these difficult times. Yeah, that's a very it's very important work, and you know a lot of people aren't thinking about um, you know important issues like reconciliation at the moment. But it does play a part. It plays a part with culture. It plays a part with uh, with identity. Um, reconciliation can actually make mean like a lot of different things to different people. Um, wh what does it mean to you, Shane? Oh, look, I guess, you know, there's there's this whole opportunity based around being able to, to share this amazing culture and knowledge that we have as Aboriginal people in this country, you know, the oldest on the planet. And, and I've always learned that, that, you know, keeping strong in, in culture and, and knowledge is, is you know, is, is probably half the battle in terms of that. So, you know, gifted to me by by my elders of the past, but being able to share this great knowledge with, with everybody that I guess crosses crosses my path. But I, I you know, I see reconciliation as as probably the main vehicle in this country. 
for driving that that change. You know, we're lucky enough to to have Trudy on the table more currently, but I think mean, you know reconciliation has been around for a long time, and there's been some amazing amazing work. And I guess my opportunity to come on board with, I guess, the lucky enough to have that that scope of work across government and across the public and private sectors. But now I'm on an opportunity, you know, where I can sort of look down on that whole lens of, of what reconciliation is, and and also, you know, to our people, what does it what does it still mean to us and for us? Um, you know, I, I do see at times the the challenges and, and and probably that cultural load when it comes to you know Rec Week and and Madoc Week. So yeah, on our mob, but you know, how are we tracking? Um, you know, what does the future look like? I guess so. You know, great opportunities, I think. Yeah, well, you're perfectly um, you're perfectly placed now, Shane, to um to you know promote those ideals with your 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 role as co-chair yeah. of um, Reconciliation Victoria. Um, and it's a and it's a journey that takes you know it's it's 365 days a year. It takes 12 months. This doesn't happen during Reconciliation Week or, or, or NADOC Week. Um, Diana, you've been on Triple R before, nearly almost exactly 12 months ago, I believe. Um, but um, you haven't been on. I don't think you're on the mission itself. So could you just briefly describe what the actual role of um, Reconciliation Victoria is? Um, As you mentioned earlier, we're the statewide body promoting um, reconciliation across the state. So what that actually means is we actively promote deeper understanding, respect and justice for first peoples of Victoria and beyond with our collective impact approach. Um, I guess our work is um, it's, it, it's challenging, but I guess it's um, important work that needs to be done. We're a small non-for-profit organisation with a massive mandate. Um, we work and facilitate connections with um, the education sector, schools and early learning, uh, local uh, government um, partners, uh, local reconciliation groups, um, organisations and individuals, but I guess um, Reconciliation uh, where Reconciliation Victoria, we're constantly in the, in the trenches, you know, um, yeah. um, and advocating for the non-Aboriginal community to start recognising a lot more, start respecting a lot more first peoples of this land. I don't know about you, but I'm, I want to see some changes in my lifetime anyway. It, it, it requires that non-Aboriginal community to continue and commit to that truth challenge. I feel that um, they need to acknowledge the past injustices and the ongoing inequalities experienced by my mob, experienced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, not just in Victoria but across the country, and for a more equal and respectful future for all of us, Black, White and Brindle moving forward in this country. Well said. Well said. Um, yeah, well, here, here. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Here, here. Um, uh, now, Shane, you're um, uh, replacing um, Belinda Duarte as the as the, the yeah. chairperson. She did a she did an absolutely fantastic job as co-chair during her time. Oh, look, 
Yeah, absolutely. And I guess I'd probably take the opportunity now to to thank Belinda for, you know, her her commitment, I guess, and passion um in, in, in that role. So I'm hoping that I can can, you know, keep up the the good work and, you know, inject some of my um, you know, learnings I guess across reconciliation and community and culture and, and, and everything else. So yeah, and look, it's a, a great opportunity. You know, as I sort of said, I've worked sort of pretty much everywhere and Terms of across government, and now I'm sort of, and and you know, obviously, you know, working with reconciliation action plans and 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 the reconciliation community as as well, you know, in in many different ways. But yeah, it's a great opportunity, I think, and and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, yeah, I think injecting something. Well, I think I think you're the man for the job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, mm. um, bring some um, ex- some new experiences and um, fresh energy. It's, it's, it's great. Um, Diana, mm. how is the um, organisation actually functioning at the moment in this current sort of pandemic environment? Everyone's taking a hit. Is, is Reconciliation Victoria taking a hit? Um, I guess it's, you know, we're taking a hit just like everyone else, but um, we're keeping our head above water in a positive way. Um, but I guess it's about how we as an organisation adapt and how we adapt and how we engage with community um, and thinking outside the box and being a little bit more creative. Mm. Still doing the work that we do, but just using different ways of how we can promote and, um, you know, um, actively promote our work out there across the state. I guess with... Um, with one of with that being with our Heart Awards, helping achieve reconciliation together, the 2020 Heart Awards. So um, we're looking at other ways of how we could um, continue with the Heart Awards, uh, potentially maybe a pre-record. So mm-hmm. our judges um, will sit, uh, the panel of judges will sit tomorrow and go through the um, the applications and um, announce the the finalists for the Heart Awards by the end of this week. So we're very excited about that. Um, and also, as you know, National Reconciliation Week um, will go ahead, is going ahead um, from the 27th of May to the 3rd of June. So okay. but just like everyone, um, it is what it is. We're working from home. We're doing the best we can. Um, but, um, I mean, it just... Are you, are you, are you able, Diana, are you able to you take a still, step... Step to the left or to the right? You're just breaking up just a fraction. Oh, sorry. Can you hear me now? <sighs> You're perfectly crystal clear. Yeah. We got all. We got it all. We got it all. But um, uh, yeah, this is the that's the important thing. It is 25 past seven this Tuesday evening. Um, you're listening to the mission on Triple R. I'm speaking with Shane Charles and Diana David from Reconciliation Victoria. Um, before I let you both go, I'm going to ask you um, one of the, the one of the most poignant but frustrating questions that uh, there is at the moment. And I'll ask you first, Shane. What what, what is the first thing you would like to do after this whole thing is over? Oh, look, for me being me, and I guess, you know, I've always been grounded with my cultures. I'm going home <laughs> to spend time on the river, but, like, then, you know, really, really probably prepare myself for this next part of the journey, I think. Um, whatever that looks like, hopefully, you know, we're out of lockdown and hopefully there's a bit of normality back for our mob. And I know those mob that have been, you know, 
fenced in or, or, or whatever like myself, you know, you know. Yeah, I'm going home to, to heal a little bit first, I think. Yeah, yeah, you, don't like, you don't seem like uh, the sort of fellow that likes to be fenced in. Oh no, nah, brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, yeah, I guess you know to get to get myself ready. I guess you know, and yeah. check with family first. Family's okay. Everybody's you know um, back on track, and then you know, I guess look at you know this whole journey about uh, you know reconciliation where we're at. You know, what does uh, what does that look like now? What does it look like moving forward? And how can we, I guess you know, really you know move it to a whole new level? Is is probably things that I like to sort of dream about and think about so yeah and what about you Diana um I agree with Shane I think um an opportunity to go back home I'm I'm well connected with my family and my community and back up on country so um and I think um I just miss giving my grandmother a hug and sitting down with my sister and brother and um eating that good bush tucker you know throwing that that um that crab pot <laughs> or that fishing line, that sort of stuff. Mm. And I've got the, you know, that privilege is I can just go home anytime I want, but I just miss that presence of my family. So, but, you know, it's just around the corner. I just have to be patient. Well, thank you both very much for your time. Um, congratulations on the co-chairpersonship, Shane and Diana. Keep up the good work and I'll speak to you in another thank 12 months, much. Diana. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. Take it easy. See you later. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. It is still April amnesty, as you may know. Um, this station has been doing a fantastic job. Um, both in studio and outside broadcasting. Speaking of technical difficulties, you know, Jazz was um, broadcasting from home on on Sunday, and she had the internet drop out on out on her like on several occasions. My internet is um, beautiful. I've got the MBN. I've got an Ethernet to to the modem, and I just forget to press mute. Um, so you know. Some people are, uh, are just better at others than others at, at, at broadcasting. But if you wanted to um, support this station that is hopefully bringing comfort and joy to you throughout this uh, difficult time, then just head to rr.org.au and look up all the wonderful prizes and um, uh, offers that you can get by being a subscriber during April Amnesty. And if you just want to donate money, then that's okay as well. But if you can't, if you don't have the cash, then that's fine as well. Hopefully we'll get through this thing together sooner rather than later. And so to our next guest. Now, look, we've covered on this show different aspects of how COVID-19, the pandemic, is affecting Aboriginal communities right across Australia. And one of the aspects that we've actually had a look to and spoken to people of uh, expertise with um, is the... Um, Aboriginal community health sector and how it's responded to this particular crisis. Uh, Well, a fabulous piece was written in the latest edition of the Saturday paper that took an in-depth look at that very issue. And the deadly journalist that penned the article is Amy McGuire. Amy is a Durham Bell and South Sea Islander journalist. She has been the editor of the National Indigenous Times and Tracker magazine. She was a a former NITV national news political correspondent. Uh, She's a journalist and a producer with uh, 98.9 
Nine FM in Brisbane. She has written for New Matilda, Indigenous X. She has worked as the Indigenous Affairs reporter for BuzzFeed and currently hosts an excellent podcast, which I encourage you to listen to, called uh, The Curtain, a podcast that pulls back the blinds to shine a light on the darkest parts of our justice system and asks, who are the victims? And she's on the line now with a couple of little toddlers running about. So if you hear those noises, just look at the radio glowingly and smile. Um, Amy, welcome to the mission. Thanks so much. It's so good to be here and what an introduction. So, well, the introduction <laughs> yeah. is what it Thanks is. Thanks so much for inviting me on. Yeah, no, thank you for your time. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I ask this question of everyone. How are you and your uh, family and friends holding up during this uh, particularly trying time? Um, I'm personally going okay because I um, was a remote student doing my PhD for a while, so it hasn't changed much in my life. But I think just that, like, the collective feeling of anxiety amongst everyone is what is more affecting me, I think. So um, I'm not doing too bad, but I just think of all the people who aren't in my position. Um, Mm. So I think that's where, you know, the anxiety and how much it's changing and the world is changing is just a bit, you know, freaking me out a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, absolutely bonkers at the moment. Um, But, uh, yeah, you know, people are hanging tough, so that's that's good to see. Now, well well done on the article. Um, In the article, you spoke to a number of prominent Aboriginal leaders involved in health in particular. Um, What did you learn about the Aboriginal community-controlled health sector's uh, preparedness to deal with COVID-19? Oh, definitely. Um, Well, I learned that, you know, it was very proactive and very far ahead of um, public health experts, but particularly government. Um, And so when I wanted, when I looked at doing the piece, I really wanted to sort of look at it from a position of strength and agency. And I was sort of thinking about it before I even knew the extent of what the Aboriginal community controlled health sector had actually done, but also the extent of what Aboriginal communities themselves, particularly in remote Australia, had done. Um, And so I think there was that narrative, even in like press conferences when they asked the question, it's all about, you know, is the government going to come in and save these poor black communities? Like who's thinking of the blackfellas? And what the reality is that mob are looking after themselves. Blackfellas are thinking about blackfellas. The thing is we have that expertise there. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we have to do. Um, And so I think there's this version from mainstream Australia who they always look down at. It's the paternalistic type way of viewing us. When we have expertise in our own communities and we also – have this, um, I mean, more than Australia, because Australia wants to disconnect themselves from the past, we remember. And I think that's why Mm. we're a lot more prepared for infectious diseases and that's showing in what's happening now. And we're not out of the woods at all, but it shows the strength within our own communities um, and that we have the ability to do with us and we just need to be funded properly to do it. Um, And so that, I mean, that was sort of, I wasn't predetermining what I was going to write, but that's what ended up coming out from talking to a lot of people um, on, on the record and off the record. You know, that's, that's what's been happening. Yeah, that's that's one of the reasons yeah. that, that, that the piece really sort of resonated with me when I when I read it because I've been um, in in some ways well speaking to 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 leaders from like Nacho and other health professionals and um, community leaders that are all trying to deal with this thing. And the thing that struck me, you know, very early on in the piece was that yeah, you know, they're actually ahead of the curve here, and the actual entire Aboriginal community controlled health sector is actually very well positioned to deal with this crisis if they're resourced properly. Yeah, uh, and I mean, that's definitely the message that comes out. And you you look at it historically from the um, black health shortfall. So there's been um, a black health shortfall for a very long time. So people always talk about, oh, you can't throw the money at the problem. In fact, you haven't been throwing enough money at the problem in the first place, but it hasn't been directed to the right um, people who are ourselves. You know, like there's a reason we have Aboriginal community-controlled healthcare. Um, And yeah, it's, it's just the fact that 
totally unrecognised. And I think the reason why it's unrecognised and why um, it's totally, you know, underfunded, chronically underfunded is because it's a model of self-determination. And for all, you know, these government positions around self-determination, they don't want that. They want, don't want mob, mob to be self-determining. You know what I mean? So I think that's yeah, no, I mean, one of the underlying reasons why we haven't been funded. And also there's profit for white people in keeping blackfellas disadvantaged. We know like there's an industry built up, like they talk about the Aboriginal industry being mob, but it's actually white people who are benefiting a lot from Aboriginal poverty. Um, and so, yeah, there's a whole host of reasons, but particularly COVID-19 highlights the strength of the sector, but also how underfunded it is and how neglected it is by government, even though we have this expertise. And I think it shows the two different leaderships as well, our black leadership and, our, and the white leadership and how different they are in every way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sort of the, the, the paternalistic approach, to, you know, instead of the, 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 oh, self, totally. the self-empowered approach, which comes as part and parcel of um, Aboriginal community control. Um, uh, the, the article highlights some of the real challenges that would occur um, and, and that, that face communities, particularly in remote parts of Australia, that would um, happen if this thing got away from us. What would some of those challenges yeah. be in remote communities in particular? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I know, I think this is why mob was, uh, you know, this, the health sector, but particularly communities themselves, we're so concerned. Um, one, obviously, higher rates of chronic disease. Um, you know, particularly a particular concern around our elders and our elders passing away, you know, comorbidities at a younger age, but also, you know, the lack of health care. You know, there's this big issue, complicated issue that still remains around FIFO workers. So a lot of remote communities have fly-in, fly-out health workers. Yeah. And so there's an issue there around quarantining and what's going to do is that if you fly them in for 14 days, they're going to have to quarantine, fly them out again. Um, so a lot of mob... Um, there's uh, new initiatives around rapid testing machines, which there are a few rapid testing machines in communities to test for STIs, and they just needed to get new cartridges in to test instead for COVID-19, so they'll be able to know within an hour. But that would have been a problem um, if you had someone who tested positive, but the two-week um, period where they weren't showing any symptoms or, the, you know, there aren't many places where you can self-isolated in, in an overcrowded house. So, I mean, the spread of the virus would have just been enormous. And we're seeing that overseas with the Navajo Nation yes. right now in the US, which has higher rates of COVID-19 than um, many American states and higher rates of death. So we're just seeing with the Navajo Nation over there what could potentially also happen in remote Aboriginal communities. Um, and those are just some of the issues that could potentially affect. Um, but I think... Also, the issue around elders, like there was a debate in mainstream Australia about sacrificing old people for the sake of the economy. You know, like that's essentially what yeah. it boils down to. No, exactly. You know, some, elders, some of the psychopaths uh, in um, the uh, yeah. the commentariat uh, oh. were basically advocating. You know, there was actually one article written about stuff like that. Yeah, there was actually one yeah. article written by yeah. someone I don't know who it was saying, "Look, you know, my my, my parents are sixty five to live a good life, and you know, if they were to pass away from oh. this thing, then it's for the better <laughs> good." Yeah. Oh my god, that's unbelievable! Like, so that you know from talking to mom, and you know from every Aboriginal community, that would just not be heard of. That sort of no, talk exactly. about it's our like elders. Your and so even first, buddy. Just from that, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because we know how much knowledge our elders hold, but they're also valued members of community. You know what I mean? They're just not, not someone you put in an aged, an aged home. You know, so Absolutely. yeah. But I mean, if the if it got into a remote community, they would potentially very dire. And so the thing is to keep it out completely. 
Um, but also, you know, there's issues around that with the travel restrictions. Um, so the, you would know about this, the anti-mob, uh, we're talking about food security issues um, in remote yeah. communities, but also policing, you know, policing borders and everything, like what's going to happen in relation to, you know, will mob get um, picked up again for, you know, things like driving offences and other things like being over-policed and more punitive approaches with always concerns around that. So, like, it's we're not out of the woods yet um, and, you know, you can't predict what's going to happen. Um, but, yeah, I think the focus has really been on keeping it um, COVID-19 out of remote communities completely because once it's in, it's going to be very hard to sort of control but also ensure that, in particular, mortality, but just the effect on mob um, to prevent that or keep that low, you know. So, yeah, um, I really hope that... I mean, it's looking good on a national level already, so yeah. we really hope that these measures, yeah, keep it out of community. It is 7 to 8 here on the mission on Triple R 102.7 FM. My name is Daniel. I am speaking with Amy McGuire, who wrote an excellent piece in the Saturday paper um, on the weekend about how basically... You know, the Aboriginal community-controlled health sector was ahead of the game when it came to responding to COVID-19. Now, we mentioned before, Amy, that, um, you know, the, the, the sector is doing great work, but it still remains significantly under-resourced and in some areas getting hold of, you know, personal protection equipment, PPE, is a um, mm. still remains an issue, believe it or not. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think um, what Pat Turner, who's head of NACHO, was saying that it's um, they do have PPE coming in at the moment, but it's not being actually distributed by the Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Sector. Um, so that's an issue as well. But, yeah, um, I think there's about $15 million that have been given to AMSs and ARCHOs for um, COVID-19 responses, um, mm-hmm. but it's obviously not enough. And so um, Angela Young, who's from the peak body for Aboriginal Community Controlled Health up in Queensland, Quake, is actually talking about how she knows some of her member services have actually had to... Um, eat into their own um, revenue generated, you know, over the past couple of years in order to provide adequate responses to COVID-19. So if you think of the fact they're already underfunded and whatever revenue they've been able to generate, um, you know, they're eating into that at the moment. It's actually really concerning also for the provision of, you know, other health services, you know, mob has still got to go to the doctors and everything like that. So, yeah, yeah it's still very concerning. Um, uh just how this very critically important part of our community um, that provides a vital service to our mob um, is just totally being neglected. And, you know, for all the talk of closing the gap and the gap is widening, you would think that this is what governments have to look at, you know, the ability for our own mob to care for mob um, because we're obviously the best people to do it, as, as we've shown and as we're showing right now in this current situation. Yeah, the uh, the pandemic is revealing, you know, a whole bunch of things about ourselves and about society, but it's also one of the main things that it's revealing is what is, um, you know, really valued and what's really essential in terms of the, the services that we provide to each other. And, you know, there's a whole opportunity now to actually get some change in some areas. And hopefully one of those changes will be is that, you know, the governments of all persuasions and of all levels recognise how vitally important this particular sector of the health um, the health system is to protecting our most vulnerable cohort in society, and that's our mob. Oh, most definitely. And so I think it's important that we continue to raise um, the strength in our community and continue to broadcast that, you know what I mean, and to continue to assert that because I think it is 
um, and exercising of our sovereignty, but also the um, assertion of self-determination. Um, and I really think, you know, obviously that's part of Aboriginal media as well and independent media is pushing against those really um, deficit models of thinking and talking about our affairs, um, ensuring that our voices are put to the forefront. So I think ensure, you know, continuing to pay attention to this issue as well and continuing to um, highlight um, the strengths in our community. You know, when we talk about the issues affecting our mob, I think that's a really important part of the conversation. We have to keep um, talking and advocating um, for um, because it's, you know, like this is life or death, you know, matter. So, um, yeah, I think that's that's definitely part of it to ensure that um, we keep fighting for what we need for our communities and that's, I think, self-determination and the recognition of our sovereignty, um, which has never been, gone away. It's always been there, but we need to have it recognised by wider Australia, I think. Well, thank you so much for your time, Amy. Really appreciate it. I know you're a busy person. Um, uh, so, uh, thanks for coming on to the uh, the, the the mission, and um, hopefully we'll get you on get you on again. Definitely, and thanks for inviting me. No worries. Take it easy. Awesome. <laughs> Best wishes. Okay. I better go Bye-bye. to the kids now. <laughs> All right. See ya. See ya. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.